Hi, my name is Colleen Cronin. I am the editor-in-chief of the Brown Daily Herald, um, Brown's independent student newspaper. Uh, today I am with Kate Ryan, our senior science and research editor, uh, because we have started a new public health podcast. Yay! Yeah, we're really excited to be bringing you into our conversations with Dr. Ashish Jha, who is the Dean of the School of Public Health here at Brown University and was formerly the director of Harvard's Global Health Institute. Over the course of the pandemic, he has become a well-respected and well-known voice on public health measures and everything basically related to this virus and how we can best handle the situation. You might have seen him on CNN. You might follow him on Twitter. We're really excited to have this opportunity to speak to Dr. Jot so everyone can be fully up to date on what is happening here in Rhode Island and around the country. Stay tuned. If you have any questions that you're interested in hearing about from Dr. Jaw, please feel free to email herald at browndailyherald.com. Yes, here's the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Jaw, for being here today with us. This will be the first time we are doing a podcast for the VDH and we're so excited to be doing it with you. I'm happy to help make it the inaugural event so it's gonna be great. We just sort of wanted to start off and just ask you you know how you are the new Dean of Public Health um, at the School of Public Health so how are you doing at Brown? Um, What what how has it been so far? Yeah so it's first and foremost I think it's like strange to start a new job in the middle of a pandemic right like uh, it's just all this I mean, any new thing has a certain set of rituals. You go meet people and you get to like, get to know a community. And I'm actually doing that, but it's much, much harder. It's much more virtual. But I have to tell you, six weeks in, I am really having fun. Like, this is a fabulous place. And um, it's very, uh, I need to compare, but uh, it's very close-knit in a way that I wasn't expecting across the entire university. You know, I grew up in a in an academic environment where every school really was kind of on their own, and they and th- and there was very little crosstalk or crossways, and that's very different here. And so I really feel like I'm part of a broad university community, and I'm really enjoying it as much as one could be enjoying anything in the middle of a of a crazy pandemic. But um, uh, so yeah, so far so good. Six weeks in, uh, I'm having a good time, and and hopefully helping the school think about sort of new opportunities and and uh, tackle some challenges. Have you tried calamari yet? Rhode Island's famous calamari. Oh my God, I've tried at least somewhere between a half a dozen and a dozen different places. At some point, uh, not that we'd want to ever make a podcast all about the different calamari places, but I I maybe I need to write up like my personal experience with Rhode Island calamari and and, uh, uh, what I like the most. But but we probably that that probably would create a bit of tension across restaurants, so we should be careful. Well, we we could maybe have you write a guest column for the Brown Daily Herald. That would be awesome. My adventures with Rhode Island calamari. So um, just sort of asking you, you know, what have you been up to this week in terms of um, public health stuff? Um, I'm sure you have been following everything that's going on. I saw news this morning um, about Pfizer potentially getting emergency approval for mid-November. I don't know if you've seen that breaking news. And then of course, Johnson and Johnson, there was an issue with um, a mysterious illness coming out of their trial. So I'm wondering, you know, what are you thinking about that this week? So one major thing that has come up this week is this Great Barrington Declaration. I don't know if you've heard about this. 
in some ways it's not worth advertising, but it's a basically a small group, these three uh, academics um, from, you know, very, from great institutions, one from Harvard, one from Oxford, one from Stanford, uh, wrote a piece basically arguing that we should try for herd immunity, that that's the right approach for our, for the country and for the world. And they did it in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which is why it's called the Great Barrington Declaration, not because it's a great declaration. It's actually um, quite a problem, but the White House has essentially in some ways endorsed it. it uh, uh, Scott Atlas, who's the main advisor now to the president has been talking it up. And, uh, and if you read it, it reads like sort of mom and apple pie. Like you read it and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, but it's hugely problematic because if you actually think about how you'd go about implementing it, uh, it will cost millions of lives in the U.S. and around the world and, and largely wouldn't even work. And so it's been very interesting because you have this small group of people saying, uh, oh, there's disagreement among public health experts, but there really isn't. And this has occupied a lot of time this week of sort of trying to counter um, this really, I think, very destructive and, 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 and kind of unworkable idea of trying to achieve herd immunity. And, you know, it's sort of pretty par for the course for this pandemic, which is instead of spending time trying to figure out how to deal with complicated problems, the whole pandemic has been marred with these little like hydroxychloroquine is our solution. And then you have to like spend all of this time saying like, no, hydroxychloroquine actually doesn't work for uh, for COVID-19. And then it's like, oh, it's convalescent plasma. And you're like, oh, actually the data on convalescent. So it's just it's these things that come out that you end up spending so much time on as opposed to just dealing with the virus. And, and that has been a very consistent theme and it's been really frustrating. Thinking about some of the news that we're getting about a vaccine, do you think with people coming out with these ideas about, oh, we'll just do herd immunity, are you concerned also that, you know, when a vaccine does eventually come out with news like, oh, a mysterious illness has popped out of one of these trials that yep. people are not gonna be receptive to the vaccines? Yeah, so the issue of vaccine hesitancy is really important. And, you know, about a, about a week or a week and a half ago, I had a, and one of the, these Dean conversation series I've been having, it was with Heidi Larson, who, and Heidi is a professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, but what, she really is, is like the world's leading expert on vaccine hesitancy and what drives people to be hesitant around vaccines. And ultimately, what I have learned from her is that when it comes to things like vaccines, it's not just vaccines, you have to understand what is really driving people's uncertainty and their lack of confidence. And you have to address it. And you have to address it with compassion and not by beating them up and calling them anti-science, anti-vaxxers, and say, saying that they're somehow not as smart. And I feel like there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy in America right now. And I'm very sympathetic to what is driving it. I, I, that's not my way of saying people should be hesitant. I actually think the vaccine development process has been done with incredible integrity. Like it's been done really well. And when you see that pause, Colleen, for the mysterious illness, I look at that as good news. And I'll explain why. Um, we have been racing towards a vaccine. We have been moving so incredibly fast. And the worry that all of us have is that the standard guardrails we have built for making sure that things are safe and effective, that somehow those guardrails will get violated. That like in the desire to get a vaccine out, we won't pay attention to all of the 
little signals that pop up along the way. That's a, that's a worry that I've had in the back of my head. And every time I see a pause, I think, ah, good. Like the guardrails are working. That's what it's supposed to do. You never get a development of a vaccine or a drug without some pause along the way, because you know something happens to somebody. And then you have to say, is this vaccine related? Or did somebody just have a random illness? And then you pause, you take time to sort it out. Most of the times it's not vaccine related. Sometimes it is. And you make a determination, but you let science kind of drive all of that. And every time I see a pause, believe it or not, it actually, for me, makes me that much more confident that we're doing this right. It also means that maybe some of the vaccines won't get through. Maybe some of the vaccines won't be safe. Um, but that will mean that the ones that do get through will have gone through a really rigorous process and will be safe. So I know that people look at these pauses and, and get concerned about what's going on and are we gonna have a vaccine? I look at them and say, great, process working. You want these things, you wanna see these pauses. If there were never any pauses, I actually would be really worried that we weren't doing this right. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> um, Science sure, is working. We love to hear it. You know, we talk a lot about vaccines, but we also talk about therapeutics. President Trump has been sort of, we've been following the wake of his diagnosis. Um, he seems to be doing pretty well, um, but he definitely is in demographic groups that we would be concerned about. And so I'm wondering if there's anything about either the fact that he was getting tested so frequently or, you know, the sort of any of the treatments that you've heard that he was receiving, if they're promising for some of the, the age groups or, or the demographic groups that he's a part of. Yeah, yeah so he is in a high risk group. Um, he's obviously uh, older, he's 74 and he's overweight. And we don't know if he has high blood pressure or diabetes. Um, but either way, he would be in a high risk group. And, uh, you know, the therapies he got, first of all, is an unusual mix. I don't say unusual to suggest that what he got was inappropriate, uh, but unusual in the sense that there probably isn't anybody else in the world right now who's gotten exactly the three things he got. But, you know, he's the president. He gets access to, uh, to certain things. So the Regeneron antibody, the monoclonal antibodies he got, um, I've actually been very hopeful that they will end up being a really important part of our uh, approach to therapy. And, uh, and, you know, we have some evidence that it works, but not a ton of evidence yet, but that's okay. And he got it as a kind of, you know, as a one off. And I actually suspect, I don't know, obviously, and this is a sample size of one, so you can't make any kind of, but I suspect that that probably was an important part of what helped him turn around. Uh, he also got remdesivir, which in general, the evidence has been that it's modestly helpful, but not no slam dunk. There's a, actually a trial out last night from WHO that actually shows that remdesivir may be not helpful at all. Uh, I just haven't had a chance to dig into that data to see why it looks a little different than, from some other data. But it is a confirmation that remdesivir probably, if it's helpful at all, it's helpful on the margins, but not a... And then he got dexamethasone, which is a steroid, which you tend to use in really more severely ill people. And you tend to use it also later during the disease course. And that to me was a bit puzzling, but he's got some fantastic physicians at Hopkins and at Walter Reed managing his disease. And so I just, you know, I'm not gonna second guess them. They, they had access to data about his care that I don't. Um, so he got a bit of an unusual mix, but I think that antibody uh, therapy, that's really the promising one. Uh, Eli Lilly has theirs as well. I have no reason to think one is better than another and, and we'll see where, the, uh, where that treatment goes. 
And sort of also zooming out a little bit from, um, you know, when he was diagnosed, are you feeling or seeing anything that indicates that maybe his diagnosis is driving more caution? Do you think that hopefully not the opposite is happening? You know, you would hope, right? That you would hope that he getting as sick as he did, you know, I think you would hope that he would turn around and say, basically, this is a very serious disease and people have to be careful. And at least to me, it's been a disappointment that he has turned around and said things like, I'm immune. And I don't know that he is. Um, he has said uh, that you should not be intimidated or fearful of this virus. Now, fear is never a good thing. So I, I guess on some level, I agree with that. But he certainly has not urged caution and, and people taking more care. And instead, and certainly through his actions, through the rallies he's had where he's packed people together, uh, wearing not wearing masks, it has struck me as uh, he has in fact doubled down on his old strategy of trying to um, bluster his way through this pandemic. And it's not working because the virus doesn't get intimidated. It doesn't get blustered and therefore off its game. It's simple biology and math. The virus does what it does. And if you ignore it, it doesn't make the virus go away. Hopefully there's some, some lessons to be learned from what has happened to him, but I guess we'll see. Um, we'll see. Uh, sort of then talking more about Rhode Island Brown college students who hopefully will be listening to this podcast um, and talking about sort of the large crowds. I think something that we saw even in um, President Paxson's email, I think it was about two weeks ago now, um, Obviously, we shouldn't be going to large parties and gatherings as college students, but I think the conversation is also shifting a lot to encouraging people to not to decrease the size of their social network, which has always been a conversation, you know, keeping in your pod, um, limiting the number of people you're not you're interacting with in a non-socially distant way. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, if part of her email had talked about how other outbreaks at other colleges um, have then because not of necessarily large parties, but because kids are hanging out with lots of different people. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all and, and how much you do think that might be contributing to um, any outbreaks or clusters that we've been seeing recently. So let's talk about uh, what we know about what's happening in the broader community. Uh, and then let's shift to thinking about its implications for Brown and, and co colleges maybe in more general and then Brown specifically. So as you know, number of cases in America really starting to tick up in a very concerning way. Um, about uh, around September 12th or 13th, we were averaging about 33, 35,000 cases a day. We are now well over 50,000. And the way to think about this virus, and this is to me has been at least a kind of a mental image that has been really helpful, is that infections in the community are like a freight train in that like when they start picking up, you just see sort of slow movement. And it doesn't, and you sort of lull yourself into believing it's not a big deal. But the biggest thing about freight trains is that they have incredible amount of momentum, right? And so they're hard to move, but once they get going, they're incredibly hard to stop. And we have spent the last four, six weeks as a country uh, just letting the momentum build. And we are now at a point where if we don't make some important changes as a nation, uh, we are going to have a very hard time over the fall and winter. Um, the, we have seen about a 35, 40% increase in cases across the nation. And some places like Wisconsin and Dakotas, 
uh, they're up two, 300% over where they were two months ago. Uh, that is a real problem. And that's what we want to make sure doesn't happen in Rhode Island because uh, what happens in Rhode Island uh, will of course affect us at Brown. So we care both because we're at Brown, but also because we're in Rhode Island and we care about Rhode Island. Um, we're starting to see real momentum in the number of cases in Rhode Island, a number of cases going up quite a bit. Uh, percent of test positives has really gone up quite a bit. Um, I am concerned about where Rhode Island is, and I'm, but I'm really concerned about where the nation is. So what's driving this, right? That's sort of the question that, that you asked. And what's driving it, some of the, so if you, when you look at the studies that have tried to figure out where are people getting infected, some of it is in, um, well, actually, take, let's take a step back. What do we know about where the virus spreads? The virus spreads when people gather indoors without wearing masks for any extended period of time. Right. So now let's apply that kind of lens to where do people gather indoors without wearing masks for extended period of time? Restaurants, right? because you can't wear a mask consistently. Uh, now, there are some restaurants that are trying very, very hard to make indoor dining safe. And I, I think they can. But a lot of restaurants aren't. Uh, bars are particularly problematic because essentially with bars, because obviously what's involved in bars is alcohol. And as soon as people start drinking, they let their guard down, they start speaking a bit more loudly. And so bars are incredibly efficient spreaders of COVID. But the other part that we have not paid attention to, and I'm, I'm staying out of the college realm for a second, but I'll get into it, is home gatherings. And that's actually causing a lot of spread because what happens is people have this mental image of, oh, it's dangerous out there, but it's safe inside my home. And so then they invite eight or 10 friends over and then they, they and then there's alcohol or food involved because you know, social gatherings. And what happens is somebody in that group is a, an asymptomatic spreader, feels fine, and they will spread it to 20 people or 30 people. And those people will go home and then they'll spread it to others. And you start seeing these large outbreaks that come from home gatherings. So that's what's driving it in the community. And then when you shift to thinking about, well, what do we do in colleges? I don't believe, for instance, that there's much evidence that getting students together in a class is risky. Why? Well, first of all, you're wearing a mask. You're some amount of social distancing. Hopefully people are not drinking alcohol in class. And uh, that was a bit of a joke. They're not. <laughs> Hopefully um, not. They're not. And the bottom line is that, that people are, and, you know, and there's not a lot of yelling and screaming, right? Uh, at least in most classes. So if you can kind of keep all that to a minimum, having people in class, especially with a little bit of social distancing, is pretty safe because it doesn't meet those kind of criteria. Obviously, large parties um, are going to be a problem. But the other part of it is if you're socializing a lot, so you're just going out with friends or seeing them in your, in your dorm room or in your apartment uh, a lot. If you're mixing with a lot of folks and you're not wearing a mask, and especially like you have a friend over, a lot of people will not then you know, take off your mask and then you hang out. Uh, essentially, you're creating an environment where one of those people will be an asymptomatic spreader and they'll spread it to you and then you'll spread it to others. And that's how these things will get going. So just trying to be more thoughtful about that. And that's actually a major reason why we're testing everybody twice a week, because you won't pick up everybody who's got asymptomatic spread, but you'll pick up a vast majority of them. And so it adds a very big layer of protection, not 100 percent. Right. We have seen outbreaks happen despite testing. Um, but the fact that our testing numbers look as good as they do make me feel pretty confident that um, people are doing a good job and, and we've got to keep going. And we've got, you know, we've got another 
um, six weeks or two months before the, uh, you know, like if we can get to early to mid-December without, uh, and then we're, then we're good for the semester. And I have lots of hope about what's going to happen uh, starting in January about what kind of ways we'd be able to keep people safe. Uh, we won't have widespread vaccine availability by January, but there are other things we may be able to do to keep people safe. So it's really about what I'm saying to folks is I'm not asking for a change of behavior for the next six months, really for the next couple of months. And then, and then we'll be able to maybe relax some things as we get into the new year. Are you concerned at all about seeing sort of a spike? We had a long weekend last weekend and after Memorial Day and then after the 4th of July, you know, all these events where people get together, uh, we've seen spikes in the numbers a couple of weeks later. Are you concerned about that at all? Or do you think people maybe have changed their behavior based on these other events that have happened? Yeah, I, uh, right. So as you said, and it's completely true, after Memorial Day, we saw a big spike uh, after July 4th and, and, and Labor Day, each of them. And it typically what happens is, uh, about about 10 days after the weekend, when you look back at the data, you see it and you see it start ticking up about five, six days after. It just takes a little bit of time for it to show up, right? Because imagine this past week on Monday, if I had a house gathering and 20 people came, which I didn't, but imagine I did, um, and a bunch of people got infected, they, they probably wouldn't even have any symptoms until Thursday, Friday, might get tested on Saturday or Sunday or Monday. And so it takes a little bit of time for it to show up, right? And so we haven't seen any of that data, but I'm absolutely concerned because it just keeps happening after every holiday weekend. So uh, I don't know that the message about what's happening in your home doesn't make it automatically safe has yet gotten through to people. Um, and I think we need to be clear about that. And I also on, on holiday weekends, people tend to go out to restaurants more and, and, and bars more. Um, I have just, you know, come to conclude that, that there is almost no justification for having bars open during this pandemic. Uh, and uh, uh, some people have done estimates that suggest that it would cost about thirty billion dollars, uh, and that's was from July. It's so probably even less now. To just basically pay bars to survive the next six months, pay their employees, so that we don't see every bar shut down. We don't want to see that. But that's a small price to pay nationally to stop large outbreaks from happening. Oh, I, I wish that someone was listening to you. <laughs> um, then just sort of talking about Brown specifically, in addition to doing asymptomatic testing at the OMAC, we just started doing flu shots. Um, are you starting to see any sort of information about what, um, it's probably not yet, but any flu COVID crossover data or any way that maybe you're worried the flu this year could negatively and maybe accelerate the impact of the pandemic? Yeah, I'm actually optimistic, hopeful uh, that we're gonna have a really mild flu season. And for two reasons, one is uh, that I'm hope hoping that people will get vaccinated this year because again, that you don't if you don't get vaccinated, your chances of getting the flu are gonna be much higher. You're gonna be more likely to end up in a hospital and this is the year you don't, if you could, I mean, you never want to get the flu, but particularly this year. So I'm hoping that vaccination rates will be high, but actually more importantly, all the social distancing and hand washing and all the stuff we're doing for COVID will have lots of benefits for the flu. So haven't seen much uptick of flu activity across the nation yet, 
Uh, I would not be surprised if we start seeing a little bit uh, as we go further into the October and into November. Uh, but I'm I'm guessing, hoping that it's going to be pretty mild uh, compared to like we might be 80 or 90 percent lower levels of flu, certainly in areas where people are wearing masks and, and doing a good job on all the kind of public health stuff. There are parts of the country where people are just acting like it's all over and they're back to normal. Um, you know, there you're going to have problems both with flu and COVID and flu can fill up hospitals on its own without even COVID. So for places that are not doing a good job on public health measures, it's going to be a very hard fall and winter. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, we really appreciate it. We look forward to talking to you again in the future and hopefully um, next time you'll have some uh, coffee milk recommendations for us as oh, well. Oh yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I'm, I will uh, work on that. And uh, look, thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. It was a great conversation. And, and uh, I know it can feel a little bit down, uh, a bit of a downer where we are, but I actually think the good news here is we know what to do to get through the next few months. It's not like, oh my God, it's a mystery. How are we gonna get through it? We can do it. Uh, and if people stay focused, there's a lot of good news coming in 2021. We're gonna have multiple vaccines that are safe and effective. We're gonna have widespread testing availability. Um, there's a lot that's coming. So uh, what I say to folks is hang on, uh, let's get through this and 2021 will be much better. And I look forward to more conversations between now and then uh, to help people get through this difficult time. So thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Stay well, everybody.